our Heavenly Father. We do not want to get stuck in trivial sentiment as we sing that carol. And we remember what the manger is, a dirty feeding trough for messy animals. And so we praise you that you would, in your great grace, send us your son as a great gift and that you would humble yourself, creator of the universe, to be born and placed in a manger. And we would say to you, there is room in our heart, Lord Jesus, and we have come to worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My mom grew up in a large family. There were uh, nine children, and I think I got to know all of them except for Uncle Kuno. Uncle Kuno died at a young age of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was uh, a great athlete, and he loved to climb. And my mother loved to tell the story of his adventure up the Matterhorn. I don't know if you've ever seen the mountain, but it's the highest mountain in the Swiss Alps right there along the Italian border, and it is awesome. And as climbs go, it's, um, it's a technical climb, but it's not all that hard until there's bad weather. And then there's hardly a climb more dangerous than the Matterhorn. In fact, all you have to do is go down to the churchyard cemetery in Zermatt and see the many tombstones like this one decorated with a climber's ice axe. Or sometimes it's a pair of crampons or some uh, gathered up climber's rope. You realize a lot of people have died climbing that mountain. And so my uncle decided to climb it and he had a very bad idea that he would do it without a guide. So he got up early in the morning and made his climb. The weather was good, but as often happens, the weather turned fierce and bad, and all of a sudden he's stuck on that mountain. He doesn't know which way is up or down, and he's fearing for his life. When in God's good providence, a guide comes down the mountain with two other climbers, and he says, you know, I I think I'll follow that guide. And he did, and he saved his life. You know, when you're lost, that's just what you need, a guide. And we have started now week two of a series of God's indescribable gift, the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to Isaiah's prophecy to see the four names that he's called, the four presents under under the tree. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our guide. He's the wisdom of God who gives the wisdom of God. And with that, he gives us his spirit, who's called the counselor, who strengthens us and empowers us to live our lives in a wise, God-honoring way. That was last week, the wonderful counselor. This week, we open up the second present. We find out that he's also mighty God. Jesus Christ is mighty God. Now, that's what we're going to be focusing in on today. Go back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 as we go back to that prophecy. You'll find it on page 489 if you need to use the Bible in the rack in front of you. Isaiah's prophecy is this prophecy about Christ. 
this promised Savior who's going to come. This one who's called the Wonderful Counselor this week, the one who's called the Mighty God. And last week we were reminded from Isaiah's prophecy beginning in verse 1 that this promised Savior is not just a special promised Savior for a small group of people. It's not just for the recipients of Isaiah's prophecy there in the southern kingdom. But we find in verse 1, it's also for the territories up in the north like Naphtali and Zebulun. And God is also through this promised Savior going to honor even Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a Savior for all people. And that's good to remember that the mighty God is promised to all of us here this morning. And what does this promised Savior bring? Well, Isaiah tells us in verse 2, he is a great light. He brings life, and as a light, he brings direction. So that even the shadow of death is eclipsed, and we are no longer walking in the dark. He's a light who gives life and guidance. In verse 3, we find out, That he is a God who brings abundance. He enlarges the nation. And with that abundance, there is an increased joy. And the joy that they have is like those who've just brought in a big harvest. Those who have just conquered an enemy and they're dividing the spoils. There is abundance and joy. You go down another verse and you find out that there's deliverance. There's freedom because he shatters those symbols of slavery and oppression, the yoke of slavery, the rod of oppression. He brings victory like he did in the day of Gideon when Midian's army went down, some 120,000 soldiers. How'd they go down? Because Gideon believed God and he took 300 soldiers and they had clay pots, torches, and trumpets. And they shattered those pots and they blew those trumpets and they held high the torches and they shouted a sword for Gideon and the Lord and they watched God do the rest the promised savior does that he shatters the enemy he shatters the things that would oppress us and enslave us but then in verse 5 we find out too that he is one who will bring lasting peace that's why he's called the prince of peace later on lasting peace you see it there in the image The boots that the warriors used in battle, the garments that have been stained in blood on the battlefield, they're not needed anymore. All they're needed for is for fuel and the fire. They're they're kindling. We don't need it anymore. It's time for peace. This is what this promised Savior brings. And the surprise in the prophecy, the surprise in the reading is verse 6. That the one who brings these things is... Nothing less than a child. A child that is born, a a child that actually is given by God himself who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now we talked about the surprise of the child last week being the source of counsel. It's not exactly what we think of. It's not exactly where we go when we're perplexed with life and needing answers to lean across the cradle and say, son, honey, I got some big problems in my life. Can you give me some counsel? We don't do that. Nor do we think about a child when we think about strength and power and needing their strength and power. We don't usually do that. In fact, as we thought about as a staff, here are some of the pictures that we envisioned when we thought of power. Well, there's the power lifter. There's extra strength Tylenol. There's powerful drugs. 
Cal came up with that one. I think we've given him a lot of headaches over 19 years, and he probably uses a lot of that Tylenol in the office. We thought of the atom bomb, picture strength, tornado, uh, Lance Armstrong doing those incredible climbs up the uh, French Alps. We've got the Energizer Bunny, right? And then the, uh, the Terrible Two, the strong-willed child. <laughs> but, but then we realize, you know, there, there's probably a picture of power that our people have never thought about. We want you to know about this, that your pastors and your staff are powerful symbols as well. <laughs> so look carefully at Joe Frazier's face there. Now, all seriousness now. Uh, What is the picture that Isaiah gives us? It's a child. It's a child. Who is this mighty God? He comes as a child. And that truth, that prophecy, begs a couple questions. And that's going to kind of guide us in our study this morning. The first is Mary's question. The Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother. How can this be? How can God become a child? How can this be? The second question we'll look up uh, and look at this morning comes from John's disciples. They're waiting for the promised Messiah. And their question is, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the mighty God? And the third question is our question. It's kind of like, okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean for me today? That Jesus is a mighty God. Okay, so that's our course. So let's, let's deal with Mary's question. Isaiah, uh, we go from Isaiah to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, you can find that on page 723. Luke chapter 1, reading at verse 26. How can this be? It's the mystery of God becoming flesh. In the flesh, incarnation. Verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. How can it be? How do you explain the mystery of the incarnation? How can you explain that the Virgin Mary, who knew no man... She had no sexual relations with any man would then bear a child. Well, the angel told her how. Do we understand it? We understand the words. We don't understand how it all happened. But the Holy Spirit came upon her such that she conceived. And the child that she gave birth to 
His name Jesus, rightfully called Emmanuel, God with us, because Jesus is God's Son, given to us by God Himself. How can it be? God is the God of the impossible, and God made it happen through His Spirit so that Jesus so that Mary gave birth to a son, though a virgin, and his name is Jesus. Well, that leads to the second question. Is Jesus the promised Savior? Is he mighty God? Well, here's how we can answer it as we look at the New Testament. First of all, what did Jesus say about himself? Well, he claimed to be mighty God. He claimed to be God. How did he do that? Well, in John chapter 8, verse 58, he gave a startling uh, statement. He said, before Abraham was born... I am. The religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying because they picked up stones to stone him. They did the same thing when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He was claiming to be God. And that, in the ears of the religious leaders, was blasphemy. And he deserved to die. Jesus claimed to be God. Even his enemies recognized that. They hated that about Jesus. Jesus had followers like Peter and Thomas who recognized him as God. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the promised Savior. You are the son of the living God. Thomas, he wasn't in in the upper room when Jesus first appeared and they saw him in the flesh. He wasn't there that Sunday night, Easter Sunday night. But a couple days later, he saw Jesus and Jesus said, hey, Thomas, here's my hands. Put your fingers through my nails, through the nail holes. He did. And he said, my Lord and my God. His followers recognized him as God. Even the centurion who supervised the crucifixion of Christ, having seen countless men die, said this, surely this man is the son of God. Jesus claimed it. Others recognized it. And then Jesus demonstrated how did he do it how did he demonstrate that he is mighty god well first of all in his sinless life he knew no sin there's a guy peter who hung out with jesus one of his disciples for three and a half years and you know what he said after three and a half years i never saw him sin he 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 never uttered a lie there was no deceit in his mouth he never sinned i'm thinking how long would it take you to spend time with me before you say oops he sinned Believe me, a lot less than three and a half years. You know sin. How does Jesus demonstrate that he's God? Well, he demonstrates it through his authority over all things. So you start reading a gospel like Mark's gospel, and you see him exercising authority over demons. So he casts a demon out of a man, and in other sections, he'll cast a demon into a herd of pigs. He's got power over demonic forces so that he says a word and they follow his command. He's got authority even to forgive sin. So he says to the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the text says Jesus knew what the religious leaders were thinking. Here's what they were thinking. Who do you think you are? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And so he says, So that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'll say to you, He looked down at the paralyzed man. He said, rise, take up your pallet, your mat, and walk. And he did. 
He demonstrates his authority in the ability to forgive sins, in the ability to heal all kinds of diseases, whether it was a paralyzed or a crippled, whether it was a leper or a blind or someone who was deaf mute or like the woman who had an issue of blood and she was hemorrhaging and hemorrhaging and hemorrhaging. Not only that, he had authority over death itself so that he could command his friend Lazarus to come back from the dead and be raised up to new life. And so he says, Lazarus, rise up, come out. And he did. He did. Authority even over death. He had authority over nature. So he could say to the storm that's raging out of control on the Sea of Galilee, peace be still. And it went from this storm that raged that made these brave fishermen fear for their life to, hey, water skiing. This is like glass. This is awesome. It's got power over creation. And then one of the most amazing things is his authority over people. It's not just abstract, it's personal. So he meets up with fishermen like Peter, James, and John. And he says, hey guys, follow me. And the Bible says, and immediately they did. See, Jesus demonstrates it as he exercises authority over all things. But the height of his demonstration that he is God has to be his death and resurrection. And here too lies part of the paradox that the one who created this whole world out of nothing and all things were created by him and for him, Paul says in Colossians 1, that this one who made the very tree that he then allowed his hands and feet to be nailed to, that Roman cross, that he would die, knowing full well what he was doing, die on the cross in your place in mine. But Paul says, hey, if that's all he did, we're a bunch of fools to follow that kind of a guy. We're a bunch of fools. But he didn't just die. He wasn't just suffocated and crucified on a Roman cross. He rose from the dead. And when he did, the paradox of his power continued. He crushed the enemy's head. He paid the penalty of our sin, which is death, which means he conquered death and his resurrected life bears proof of that very fact. You go, well, wait a minute. That stuff happened a long time ago. How, How do I know, me today, that Jesus is the mighty God? Well, I'll tell you how. By meeting his followers who in the paradox of power continues in the vein of Christ. You, you see Christ's power in his followers in ways that you wouldn't immediately think of as being powerful. So here's one for example. If you were to go to Rwanda right now, remember that movie Hotel Rwanda? This is just in our recent history, the mass genocide there in that African nation. You would find churches that stand today, the charred embers the charred framework still standing in the sky. And inside those charred frames, today are the charred bodies of children, of husbands and wives and parents and cousins who fled to their church for safety. And the followers of Christ in Rwanda have chosen to forgive. It doesn't look all that powerful. Rage and vengeance looks powerful to our eyes. But let me suggest to you, Christ's power is seen when his followers choose to forgive. 
And that happens in a place like this. As we forgive each other, as we have to forgive those in our family, maybe even a spouse who's been unfaithful to us. It's the power of Christ showing up today. The power of Christ shows up today in our weakness. Sometimes it's in our physical weakness. I think of a woman like Johnny Erickson. She was this great athlete and swimmer and has a diving accident. She's paralyzed from the neck down. She's a paraplegic at 18. And she would say that I would choose the chair to being able to walk. Because we're thinking, wow, God's power in Johnny's life would be like the paralytic. God's saying, hey, Johnny, get up. Throw the chair away. Get up. And we go, wow. Can you believe he did that? Well, let me suggest to you, as you hear Johnny say, I choose the chair over walking. You see the power of Christ. She'd say, there's things that he's done in my life through this accident that never could have happened. And he's doing things through me and my disability that I could never have happened had it not been for that accident. You see the power of Christ. As we heard a couple weeks ago when our friend, member here at the church, Roger Beaver, talked about the powerful work of Christ to just change his life from the inside out. To make him his follower. And it changed the lives of many in his family. And when that happens, Christ's power is seen as, as we follow Christ's steps to say, just as Christ did my life for yours, I'm giving my life away. I'm giving all that I have to others and to God and his work. And so when this church invades the community of Madison with the love of Christ, whether it's to a homeless person, someone down at the Salvation Army mission, building a house for another family with Habitat, You see, these are expressions of Christ's power in us as we say, you know what, it's just not about serving me. Christ, you changed my life and now you have brought a new disposition in my heart so that it's my life for yours as we give our lives away in service. And on and on and it goes. Christ's power seen in his people. Well, that gets you to the third question. It's your question. It's the so what at its crassest level. So if Jesus is the mighty God, what does that mean? What does that mean for me today? What does that mean for me this week? How how does that information change my life? Well, let me suggest to you that the four presents under Isaiah's tree is a reminder that God has given us just what we need. This is what we need. Mighty God. Because we are not mighty people. Oh man, we, we try to make it look like we are, but we're not. And when you realize that you are a person who is not all powerful, when you come to things in your life that you go, whoa, this is bigger than me, then what you do is you go, I'm going to put my hope in this God, this mighty God, not in myself. And I'm going to ask him for help. That's where Isaiah goes. In fact, I think Isaiah helps us make the application to the mighty God. So turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen to Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll look at verses 28 through 31. Isaiah chapter 40. 
verse 28 through 31. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This mighty God, he will not grow tired or weary. This wonderful counselor has understanding that no one can fathom. Not only that, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Hey, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, those who place their trust in the Lord will renew their strength. And look at the picture. They'll soar. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's what you do. And the book of Isaiah gives us a perfect illustration. So what does that look like? I know what I'm supposed to. What does that look like? 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. I didn't know this until I was digging around in the book this week. There's one story in the whole book. It's all prophecies and poetry until you get to chapter 36. From 36 to 39, there's a story. There's only one story in the whole book. And it's the story, it's the narrative of King Hezekiah, good king, who's got a big problem and who's facing a bad king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who has swooped down from Nineveh Down through the ten northern tribes, he's captured city after city, destroyed fortified walled town after fortified walled town. And now he has surrounded Jerusalem. He writes, Sennacherib does in his annals, I have the king, King Hezekiah, caged like a bird. I got him. I've got him surrounded. And soon he'll be in my grasp. So, What does it look like? What does it look like to put your hope? What does it look like to have God as a mighty God? Well, the king, King Hezekiah, helps us understand what it looks like. In 2 Chronicles 32, 7 and 8, this is what Hezekiah believed, and this is how his belief in God being an all-powerful God, how it worked out in his life, in the life of his people. Here's what he said. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with them. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. What did he say? Be strong and courageous. We have a greater power. Now, I'm sure they're looking over the walls and they go, really? Because, man, that's a big army out there, Hezekiah. I mean, there are thousands of soldiers there. And they look like they've got supplies for a couple of years. Sennacherib sends an envoys up to the wall. They start heckling and taunting and trying to broker a deal with the people. They say, look, what... Where's your confidence based on? Don't you know what we've done to everybody around you? We've wiped them out. Don't let your God deceive you. Don't let your king deceive you. And so what Hezekiah did is, chapter 37 of Isaiah, verse 20, he falls on his face before the Lord and he cries out, deliver us for this reason, so that everybody on the earth may know that you alone are God. You do it. So here's what happened. 
Hezekiah goes to bed. That's a good thing. You have a problem sleeping? When you know you have a mighty God, you know you can sleep. Hezekiah slept. You know what happened that night? The text tells us that an angel of the Lord came, and that night the angel took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So when Hezekiah woke up, the first report he got is, you're not going to believe this, king. They're retreating. Sennacherib's got his tail between his legs, and he's heading home. And there's 185,000 bodies surrounding our city. Text goes on to say, he gets back to Nineveh, to the capital city of Assyria, where his two sons assassinate him as he's worshiping his God, the God that he was so confident in, the God that he was boasting about. Before this very God, he's assassinated by his very sons. Oh, what a picture of what it looks like to place your hope in an almighty God and to cry out to him for deliverance. King Hezekiah shows us the way this week. What does that look like? One more Matterhorn story. Year is 1865, July 14th. Edward Wimper has now failed six times to summit the Matterhorn. But on that day, he is successful. The first Brit, along with his six other companions, to make the summit, beating the Italian team by a couple of weeks. And you can imagine when they got to the summit, there was some serious, I don't know if they high-fived in the 1800s, but there was some serious high-fiving. I mean, they were jacked. And so it was with this sense of great, exhilarating joy that they're coming off the mountain. Now, back in those days, mountaineering was a little different. They were all tied together to one rope. They don't do that. The reason they don't do that is because it was one of the most tragic accidents that ever happened climbing that mountain. The second guy in line lost his footing. Before they knew what happened, he slid down the snow, knocking the first lead guide off of his feet. The two of them dragged climbers three and four. And before Wimper knew what happened, the rope snapped. And those four fell to their death. He said it was such a haunting memory that he thought about it every night. Here's what he wrote in his annals recording this moment. Every night, do you understand? I see my comrades on the Matterhorn slipping on their backs, their arms outstretched, one after another, in perfect order, at equal distances. Crows the guide first, then Haddow, then Hudson And lastly, Douglas. Yes, I shall always see them. Here's this great guide, this great mountain guide, who was unable to save his friends, though he desperately tried and would have done anything to do so. Friends, we have a wonderful counselor who's a mighty God. He is able to save us as we find ourselves in a free fall today. And I don't know where it is. But I know there's stuff in our lives today, just like Hezekiah had, where you come to the realization that this is bigger than me. Maybe it's going on right now in your marriage. That thing is in a free fall, and it's going to crash. Isaiah says, you need a mighty God. Jesus, you need Jesus. Maybe it's your body physically. Maybe you've heard news recently 
that is ominous and you fear for your life and you're gripped and afraid of dying, you need a mighty God. Maybe it's your finances right now. You are so far in debt, you don't know how you're ever going to get out of it. And the pressures are intense every day. It's straining the closest relationships that you have. You need a mighty God. Maybe you find yourself so burdened with guilt for stuff that you've done in your life that you know this wasn't right and you don't know what to do with it. You need a mighty God. I think one of the hard things that we face in life is when somebody that we love is going through difficulty and, and we so desperately want to help them and, and we can't. We've tried everything. You need a mighty God. Jesus Christ is our wonderful counselor who is all-powerful. And the smartest thing for you and me to do is follow the paradigm of the paradox. And that is to say, God, I'm weak. I give up. I had a guy come up to me after church last night. That's what he said. He said, you know, I've been trying. I've been trying all my life, and I quit. I give up. Pray that God will help me. That's the paradox of power is to find your strength at the very point where you acknowledge, I'm not strong. It's bigger than me. I need a mighty God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, grant faith to those who today need to put their hope in you. Give them faith to believe that what you said about yourself, what others said about yourself, and what you demonstrate is true, that you are the mighty God, that you died for us, and that you can rescue us no matter what kind of a free fall we're in. And strengthen us who know you to continually place our hope in you. Deliver us that everyone would know on the face of this earth that you alone are God. Amen.